Well, I want to follow up with something that Ken mentioned just a few minutes ago and reaffirm our, our love for all of you, but especially for those of you who would consider yourself to be a guest at Christ Fellowship. Now, a guest can mean many things. A guest might mean this is your first Sunday you've ever stepped in the doors, or you might have been coming for a few weeks or a few months or longer, but you just haven't got plugged in yet. You maybe haven't got a chance to meet some of the elders or the deacons. You might have had a chance to meet me. I have no idea. So we want to uh, have you take out your phone or your calendar or your one of your devices and mark February 11th. On February 11th, we're going to have a special dessert for uh, anyone who would consider themselves to be a guest and not yet plugged into Christ Fellowship. This would be just an informal time to grab a, a cup of coffee, some uh, some juice, some cake, some uh, some kind of a snack that we'll have together. Just an informal time to gather. We're going to have as many of the elders and deacons that are a- able to be there that day. And it'll just be a great time. So I want to invite you to that. And I know I'm really looking forward to that time of interaction. I want to have you this morning open with me, uh, opening your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I was smack dab in the middle of my education at Multnomah University. I was a 21-year-old punk. My major was Bible and theology, but I still didn't have any idea what I was to do with my life. I just didn't have a a life direction. Some of you might be surprised to learn that I, I'd considered uh, banking. I'd considered going into the business world. I considered teaching high school. Uh, there's several things on the on the radar screen, but I didn't quite know what to do. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about a lack of direction or just being flat out discouraged. You might be here this morning and and feel immobilized with your lack of direction. Perhaps a, a troubling heart, uh, a troubling event rather, has has overtaken you, has shaken you. Uh, perhaps you're you're dealing with spiritual apathy, and you feel like when you pray, your 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 prayers bounce right off the ceiling. Perhaps you're here this morning, and doubt is paralyzing you. The python of unbelief is squeezing the life out of you. You may feel like your life has no direction. You don't know which direction to turn. Well, in the midst of my days of confusion, when I was a young 21-year-old college student, there is an event that I want to share with you this morning that I look back at that event with a great deal of delight. It became a watershed moment in my life and fills me with a great sense of awe. I remember as I was sharing with my with my parents about this general lack of direction. I only had another year and a half or two to finish my college education. I had no idea what I was going to do. And my dad suggested sitting down with my Uncle Paul. Well, my Uncle Paul, as a man who I, I greatly respected in those days, uh, was a pastor of a large church in the Bay Area. We didn't see him all that often, but he... And God's timely providence was going to be in Portland where I was attending the university. We got together with Uncle Paul and we shared a meal together with my family at the Red Lion Hotel there in Portland. Some of you can picture where that is. And after the meal, I asked if I could visit with him. And he said, certainly. And we got together and I shared my heart with him and, and just kind of poured out this this, uh, these thoughts of anxiety, not knowing what I was going to do with my life. And he said, Davey, let's go for a walk. 
And so we began to walk the halls of the Red Lion Hotel. And looking back, I, I remember being kind of tripped out. I was like, what in the world is going on here? Because we were literally in, in the, the main portion of the hotel where we left the restaurant and we were just wandering. We went up to the second floor and the third floor and down the elevator and, and we just kept walking and, walking. and I'm like, where in the world are we going? Well, looking back now, I realized that what Uncle Paul was trying to do was to find a private place where we could pray. He'd heard my concerns, he'd heard, heard my, my anxious thoughts concerning the future, and he says, let's stop right here and pray, and I'll never forget it. He put his hand on my shoulder, and he prayed that God would grant peace. He prayed that God would open the right doors and close the right doors. He prayed that God would, would direct my paths, that he would make the, the future abundantly clear to me. It was an absolutely powerful prayer. It is a prayer that I will never forget for the rest of my life. Well, the title of the message this morning is A Powerful Prayer. This is a prayer that we're going to look at in Ephesians chapter 1 that was directed to the Christ followers in the city of Ephesus. And as we will soon discover, it was a powerful prayer. It was a prayer that the Ephesians would never forget. I want to have you look with me and stand, if you would, for the reading of God's Word as we read beginning in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Father, Thank you for this opportunity to be together in this place. Thank you that we live in a country where we can open the word of God and read it and meditate upon it and study it without fear of uh, persecution or being hauled off to jail. We thank you for that great freedom that we have and pray that you would protect that freedom. Thank you for this, this amazing epistle written by your servant, the Apostle Paul. And we ask that you would drive the reality of this prayer into our hearts, that you would encourage your people. God, I ask that uh, we would understand your word, that we would digest your word, and that we would be encouraged by it. We trust you to do mighty things here in this place. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you were here last week, you may think that I... Perhaps I'm a little slow because this is the passage I preached on last week. Well, I want to divide this unit of thought. When I say the unit of thought, I'm referring to verses 15 to 23 
I want to divide this unit of thought into three divisions and give you a bit of a roadmap to show you where Paul is going. First, I want you to see in verses 15 and 16 what I have labeled this as the profound gratitude for God's people. The profound gratitude for God's people. Then in verses 16 to 19, we see the prayer for God's people. And then finally, we see the praise to God for his exaltation of Christ. Now, last week, the the profound gratitude for God's people, we learned that there were some reasons for this gratitude. We learned that Paul was was beaming with gospel-centered resolve, and as a result, he was filled with gratitude for the people of God. We learned that his gratitude was based on what he had heard. He had heard in the city of Ephesus and even beyond Ephesus about the, the faith of the Ephesian believers and their love toward all the saints. And we finally learned that he was bolstered by their lives. He was greatly encouraged by their lives. Well, today we turn our attention to the prayer, the prayer for God's people. And I want you to notice two broad headings as we pay close attention to verses 16 to 19 and learn about the the essence of that prayer. The first heading I want you to pay close attention to is the shape of his prayer. The shape of Paul's prayer. Read verse 16 with me. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering, if you would mark that word, remembering you in my prayers. As we look at the shape of Paul's prayer, I I want you to see four very important observations. First, I want you to see that his prayer was persistent. His prayer was persistent. Now, we have already learned last week about Paul's persistence in giving thanks. He became somewhat of an expert in being a, a man who is committed to an attitude of gratitude. But we also see Paul's persistence in prayer. The reason I asked you to mark that word remember is because the word remember has a a deeper significance that I want to be careful not to miss. Now, the word remember, the same word for remember is found in, I'm going to give you the technical phrase here, the LXX. Some of you may not know what the LXX is. The LXS is something that we refer to as the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And don't be confused by this. Most of you understand very clearly that the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi was written in Hebrew. But later in church history, the, the, the scribes and the theologians and the scholars got together and they, they penned what we now know as the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now back to the word remember. That word remember appears in the Septuagint. The same word appears where God is said to remember his people in grace and mercy. In Genesis chapter 8 verse 1, we read, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Why? Because God remembered. Later in the book of Genesis, we read, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. And he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. 
You see, Paul instructs us to pray persistently. He also models it for us here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16. Now, in one sentence, he packs much of what we have learned over the past several weeks. Listen to it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Then in Philippians 4, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we learn about the shape of Paul's prayer, we first learn that it was a persistent prayer. But I also want you to see that it was a passionate prayer. And once again, the word remember helps us here. The word remember suggests an intimacy for those with whom he prays. This is a prayer that expresses a longing for the people of God. This is a a deep desire in Paul to pray for the people of God, to show his concern for the people in Ephesus. And he is not merely checking off his list. Have you ever done that in the Christian life? You've got to check off prayer so you can say you did it. Um, I'm one of those guys. I'm a list maker. I did my devotions. I had my prayer time. I, I read part of my book. I did that. I cleaned this. I did that. You've got to fill out your list. Paul's not merely checking off a list. He's wrestling with God and expresses deep, Desire and longing for these dear followers of Christ in Ephesus. Indeed, this is a passionate prayer. But it's not only a a persistent and passionate prayer, it's also a pointed prayer. It is a pointed prayer. As I was studying this passage and I, I read here that he didn't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, I, I remember the word for prayer in the Greek. It's the word prosukamai. Prosukamai. When I was a, a young youth pastor, we used to have a, an event every Thursday morning. I would get together with, with anyone in the youth group that wanted to meet at the church in the at a youth building, kind of like we have here at Christ Fellowship. And we came together at this event that we called Prosukamai. I'd like to tell your friends, hey, what are you doing? Seven o'clock on Thursday morning, I'm going to Prosukamai. You're going to what? Well, Prosukamai simply means this. It means to utter a reverent petition, to utter a reverent petition. This prayer is direct. It's directed right at the hearts of the Ephesians. It is directly aimed at also every subsequent believer, which is to say Paul was not only praying for his friends in Ephesus, he was praying for Spence and Beth and Aaron and April and Kyle and Kathy. And your children. He was praying for you. He was praying for the people of God. And so don't limit this only to the dear saints in Ephesus. He was praying for the people of God throughout all of redemptive history. It's an absolutely amazing thing when we consider this. I want you to also see that this was a profound prayer. This is not only a pointed prayer, it is a profound prayer. And the content of Paul's prayer is, is filled with sincerity. 
His prayer is earnest. This, there is an intensity you'll see in this prayer that reaches into the heavens and, and pleads with God for the good of his people. And so this prayer is persistent and passionate. It is pointed. It is profound. This is the shape of Paul's prayer. Second, I want you to look with me at the substance of his prayer in verses 17 to 19. The substance of his prayer. And before we look at four very critical elements that we'll see that clearly emerge from this passage, I want you to consider with me some very important principles about prayer. Notice whom Paul directs his prayer to. Do you see it? Verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. We find Paul, as a matter of principle, in the pages of the New Testament, directing his prayers to the Father. And if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, we see that this, this is really the way that the Lord Jesus Christ instructed the disciples to pray. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, this section of Scripture when he is giving some very important instructions to the disciples. Matthew 6, verse 6, and he says this, When you pray, he assumes that the disciples will pray. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to who? Pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Then drop down to verse 9. He continues his instruction to the disciples. He says, guys, listen, this, this, is, this is cliff notes on how to pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. The normal pattern of prayer, you see, should be directed to God the Father through the Spirit in the name of the Son. You see, the only reason that we pray to the Father, let alone come into his presence, is because we have a high priest, and the high priest's name is Jesus. And so be careful when you pray that, that when you say, in the name of Jesus, amen, that's just not a tack on. That's just not so the prayer sounds good. You pray in the name of Jesus because you are able to approach the Father. It's only because of the high priestly work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose emerges very clearly in this prayer. It frames up the substance of the prayer. Paul goes on. He's praying that the Father give. Notice that word. He prays that the Father would, would give, in verse 17, the people of God four very specific things. If you're a person that likes to write in your Bible, I would, I would highlight or circle that word give. It's a word that, that means to grant something. He prays that, that God the Father would give or grant something, something to the Ephesian believers and recognize this, whenever God gives something, whenever God grants something, He does so graciously, mercifully, and sovereignly. 
Here's what Paul is praying for in specific. Look at verse 17. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of our glory, Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The first thing he prays for, for the Ephesians and every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, is spiritual wisdom. He prays for spiritual wisdom. And this isn't the only place that this prayer request emerges. One other place you might look at is Colossians chapter 1 verse 9. Where he says to the believers in Colossae, And so from this day we heard we have not ceased to pray for you. And are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He prays for wisdom. Well, what's wisdom? I was actually listening to a message a few days ago by uh, one of my best friends in the world, uh, Pastor Wayne Pickens. And here's the definition Pastor Wayne gives for wisdom. He says, wisdom is the practical, God-given, God-centered discernment applied to the challenges of everyday life to benefit man and glorify God. It's the practical, God-given, God-centered discernment applied to the challenges of everyday life to benefit man and glorify God. Would you turn with me to the book of 2 Chronicles, back in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 1. And I want to show you an interesting section of scripture that refers to King Solomon and the prayer that he prays for wisdom. Second Chronicles chapter 1, beginning at verse 10. And I'm going to grab a drink of water. <clears throat> Excuse me. Second Chronicles chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. And we would refer to this as a prayer request. And here is the request. Solomon says, give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come before this people for who can govern this people of yours which is so great god answered solomon because this was in your heart and you have not asked for possessions wealth honor or the life of those who hate you and have not even asked for long life but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you, and I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings had before you, and none after you shall have the like. Solomon prays for wisdom, and God answers this very important prayer request. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29, we also read, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure. How would you like that? That God grants wisdom and understanding beyond all measure and the breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. 1 Kings 4.34, And the people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and all the kings of the earth had had, had heard his wisdom. Later we learn that the queen of Sheba, she learns that Solomon is this, this man of wisdom and desires to learn from him. Why is it? That you and I need spiritual wisdom. Well, there's several reasons. We need wisdom to navigate the trials and the temptations of life. We need wisdom to discern between good things and evil things. 
We need wisdom to discern properly to, to people in our lives and, and re- relate to them properly. We need wisdom to make decisions that, that benefit people in our sphere of influence. You and I need wisdom that help to benefit the, the kingdom of God that will also glorify God. And so we need wisdom in, in the area of finances, in parenting, in our marriages, where we go to school, in our careers. I can't think of anything that we do on a daily basis where we don't need a truckload of wisdom. Well, that's the first prayer that Paul utters for the Ephesians and also for you and me, that we would have spiritual wisdom. Second, he prays for spiritual understanding, a spiritual understanding. Look back at the book of Ephesians chapter one in verses 17 and 18. He prays that we would receive the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. I have to ask, what is this prayer all about? What is spiritual understanding? Well, spiritual understanding is simply put a deep knowledge of the character of God. D.A. Carson says, what is the greatest need in the church today? He says, the one thing we need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. He says, we need to know God better. And so we have done a sermon series here at Christ Fellowship where we explored some of the attributes of God. Young people, junior hires and high school students may see from time to time a, a study on the attributes of God. In JAM, you may learn about the attributes of God. In men's Bible study or women's Bible study, you may learn about the attributes of God. And then it might happen several years down the road again. Why? Because we need to continually be learning about the attributes of God. We need a deep knowledge of his character. Well, spiritual understanding is not only knowing God and his attributes, it's having a deep knowledge of his purposes. We continue to go deeper and deeper into grace and learn more about his ways and his purposes and know that his ways, as Isaiah says, are higher than our ways. Beyond paths or tracing out. We also know that spiritual understanding involves a deep knowledge of the word of God. Remember that we need the Spirit to help us to understand the Word of God. Spurgeon said this. He said, apart from the Holy Spirit, it is easier to teach a tiger vegetarianism than an unregenerate person the gospel. That's something. It's easier to teach a tiger how to be a vegetarian than an unregenerate person the gospel. And so we are reliant, deeply reliant on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The spiritual understanding also involves a a deep spiritual knowledge of what Jonathan Edwards referred to as divine things. We need to learn about these divine things. Edwards says, where there is heat without light, there can be nothing divine or heavenly in that heart. So on the other hand, where there is a kind of light without heat, a head stored with notions and speculations with a cold and unaffected heart, There can be nothing divine in that light. That knowledge is no true spiritual knowledge of divine things. Finally, spiritual understanding requires a renovation of the heart. In what may be one of the most powerful things that Edwards ever said, 
He said, if the things of religion are rightly understood, they will affect the heart. That is to say, if you study the Bible, if you study theology, if you memorize verses and they don't affect your heart, you have effectively wasted your time. True religion, Edward says, if the things of religion are rightly understood, if you truly understand what you memorize, what you read, what you study, they will affect the heart. That is the essence of spiritual understanding. Why do we need it? Why do you and I need spiritual understanding? And as I meditated upon this, several things came to mind. First, we need spiritual understanding And I I, I pray that this will resonate with you. We need spiritual understanding because our hearts are prone to wander. Can you relate to that? We sing a, a hymn from time to time. It's one of my favorites, and it goes like this. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Why do we need spiritual understanding? Because even as the people of God, our hearts are prone to wander. Additionally, our hearts are prone to drift. We talked about this last week in Veritas. That our hearts are prone to drift. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. I was sharing a story last week about a time when my brother and I were given free opportunity to sit on a boat and to, to be on that boat the whole afternoon with no adult supervision. I mean, it was, it was incredible. And so we went out on the boat and decided not to put any kind of an anchor down. And we ended up on this hot day falling asleep. And I don't know how long we were asleep, but when we woke up, I had no idea where we were. What happened? We drifted. And so the writer of Hebrews says we have to be careful. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This is why we need spiritual understanding. Additionally, we need the spiritual understanding because our hearts are prone to turn away from God. Once again, the the writer of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Moreover, we need spiritual understanding because our hearts are prone to grow dull. Can you relate to that one? Hebrews 5.11 says, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since we have become dull of hearing. Have you ever come to church, whether it's Christ Fellowship or any other church, or or you go to a Christian conference and you, you listen to a message for 30 or 40 or 50 minutes, and you go out to your car and you say to yourself, I have no idea what I just heard. I have no idea. Now, there's two things that may have happened. One, you might have fallen asleep. And then we know why you don't remember anything that was said. But you may have been awake and you're daydreaming or your mind is on other things or you're worried about something. Or it may be that you have grown dull. Hebrews says that some have become dull of hearing. 
We need spiritual understanding because our hearts are easily deceived. We've been having a good time in in one of the Veritas classes as we have been unpacking Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. And I'm going to move ahead in the story several, several chapters, and so this will be new information for the class. But here's one thing that, that Bunyan puts in the book. There's a, a character, a godly character by the name of Evangelist, Mr. Evangelist. And he says this to Christian, and it's godly counsel. He says, let the kingdom always be before you and believe resolutely in the things that are invisible. We could stop there and have some fun with that one. What Evangelist is saying is, Christian, focus on the invisible. He's saying, walk by faith, not by sight. He says, let nothing on this side of the other world get inside you. And above all, pay close attention to your own hearts and to the desires of it. For they are more deceitful than anything and desperately wicked. Set your face like stone. You have all the power in heaven and earth on your side. There's one remaining reason that we need spiritual understanding, and that is because our hearts are simply prone to unbelief. Our hearts are prone to unbelief. That is why the man in Mark's gospel, chapter 9, said to the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe. Help my unbelief. It is one of the most fascinating statements, in my estimation, in the New Testament. A man who says, I believe. Help my unbelief. I hope that encourages you. That if you're struggling with unbelief, you say to, to your God, to your Savior, Lord, I believe, but I am wrestling with this. I am struggling with this. Help my unbelief. That person needs spiritual understanding. And so, so Paul prays that we would have spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. But he also, in verse 18, which we already read, prays for spiritual hope. Verse 18 reveals an additional purpose of possessing spiritual understanding. That is, so that we would have or possess spiritual hope. Well, what is spiritual hope? Hope is something on which our expectations are centered upon. And we understand the the idea of hope very well. The, the students in the first couple of rows, I think I pick on you guys every week, don't I? But the students can understand hope during this season of, of their, their school life because I think grades just came out, right? And so you, you hope you're going to get that A or B or whatever your goal was in the class. You're, you're ready for the envelope to come in the mail. You're going to open the envelope. You're going to go, I got an A. You hope you get a good grade. In Whatcom County, we hope for a few sunny Days. We hope for a good economy. We hope for all these things. But the hope that Paul has in mind in this passage is not economic hope. It's not educational hope, but it is spiritual hope. That you may know what is the hope to which he called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Simply put, this is an experiential hope. 
This is a hope that you, that you internalize, that you experience. We don't merely read about this hope. We experience this hope. This is what Paul referred to in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he referred to eternity. It's an eternal hope. It's a certain hope that we cling to by faith. You remember Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And finally, this is a hope that is to be found in a city. That's capital C-I-T-Y. This is the glorious inheritance that we have been learning about. Would you turn with me to the book of Revelation? While you're turning there, can I just say something and get it off my chest? It's revelation, not, someone do it, then I won't have to say it. It's not revelations, so we've eliminated that forever from our vocabulary. So the book of Revelation, chapter 21, there is a future hope that is found in a city. Isn't it interesting that... The first man and woman, Adam and Eve, were created in this beautiful garden. And Adam fell. And for the rest of redemptive history, what is it that people are on a quest for? It is a quest for that city. And in Revelation 21, we read about the new heaven and the new earth. I saw a new heaven, John says, and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city. Here's the quest. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And by the way, when I say the quest is for the city, it's not the city in and of itself. It's who will be in the city. It's the quest to be with God. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Listen, if you were here today, and you were praying for hope, hope is in the future. Hope is coming. And what I mean by that is this. Some of you have physical ailments. I just finished a book a few days ago about a pastor who pastors in Abu Dhabi. He's a godly man. He's, he's a young pastor. And he said that he and his wife moved to the Middle East to change the world. But he didn't realize that God was going to change him. Because he got an ailment in his arms. It's, he experiences to this day excruciating pain in his arm. If someone just bumps his elbow, it just, it just sets him through the roof. And so I read with amazement about this godly pastor who, who moves his whole family to Abu Dhabi to plant this church. And he has not only persecution, but he has horrible physical pain. And he writes about it in this book. Some of you have physical pain. Some of you have relational issues that are unresolved and it's driving you nuts. 
Some of you have financial issues where you, where, you have, where you have debt and you don't know what to do with it. You may have marital issues. You may have issues with your children. You feel like you need hope. This is the prayer of the Apostle Paul. He prays that you would have spiritual hope. Continue to read in Revelation chapter 21 verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Do you hear the hope? One day the physical ailments for every Christ follower will be gone. All the relational struggles will be gone. The suffering you're experiencing will be gone. Some of you have lost loved ones in recent days or years and those loved ones who are followers of Christ, you will be with your loved one in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, and the new earth. Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon entitled, Heaven is a World of Love. And I'll just read a few lines from the sermon for you. He said, The joy of heavenly love shall never be interrupted or dampened by jealousy. Won't that be nice? There shall be nothing within themselves to clog or hinder the saints in heaven in the exercises and expressions of love. In heaven, love will be expressed with perfect decency and wisdom. There shall be nothing in there, there shall be nothing external in heaven to keep its inhabitants at a distance from each other or to hinder their most perfect enjoyment of each other's love. And then he says, in heaven they shall enjoy each other's love in perfect and uninterrupted prosperity. I remember as a kid, I used to think, oh man, heaven's going to be boring. I used to think the music's going to be horrible. <laughs> uh, right? Those slow hymns and you have to sing every verse four times over, right? Well, I had a misperception of heaven. There's going to be nothing more grand than heaven because Jesus is making all things new. I don't know about you. Is anyone, are you ready to go to heaven? I can't wait. Oh, it's going to be incredible. Why do we need spiritual hope? We need spiritual hope because the things of this earth, it distracts us. Temporal things distract us. The fallen world discourages us. And so we need that spiritual hope. Finally, Paul prays for spiritual power. He prays for spiritual power. Back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. And he really throws the words together. He says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? The immeasurable greatness of his power. Know this, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And if you meditate that on, meditate on that for just a second, think about that. The same power, that's some serious power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you. The power is made available to the people of God. Romans chapter 8 verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Why is it that you and I need this spiritual power? One writer says, we need not fear when we have spiritual power. We need not fear when we have superior power. 
The power of the risen Christ is ours to do battle against worry, temptation, doubt, and demonic warfare. And I would add, in any other thing you struggle with in the Christian life. This morning, we have seen the shape of Paul's prayer and the substance of his prayer. And at this point in his letter to the Ephesians, I should tell you that the church wasn't going through some kind of a, a, a split. The, the church wasn't going through some massive uh, crisis. In fact, you'll remember that Paul commended them for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love toward all the saints in verse 16. This is the reason that he gave thanks for them. Yet, and this is the key, Paul understands the inner workings of the human heart. He understands that you and I are prone to fall prey to foolishness. And so what does he do? He prays for wisdom. He understands that our hearts grow lazy and fickle. And I want to challenge you with something. If you're here this morning and you say, when you hear me say, he understands that our hearts grow lazy and fickle. And if you say to yourself, my heart's not lazy or fickle. Can I just tell you, you probably struggle with it more than anyone else you've ever known. Paul understands that we are inclined to laziness and having fickle hearts. He understands how easy it is to to wander from the safety of the narrow path. He understands that our hearts are prone to wander. He understands that our hearts are prone to drift. And so what does he do? He prays that you and I would possess spiritual understanding. He recognizes that our our hearts on a daily basis may be dashed or distorted in a fallen world. And so what does he do? He prays that you and I, he prays that the Ephesians would have spiritual hope. And then finally, he knows that apart from Christ, we are weak. He knows that apart from Christ, we are frail. And I don't know about you, but sometimes do you just get tired in the Christian life? And so he knows What we need. And so he prays for spiritual power. This is the powerful prayer of the Apostle Paul for the Ephesian believers. But his prayer is for every Christian who is here today. This is my prayer for you, Christ Fellowship. That today you would possess spiritual wisdom. That today you would possess spiritual understanding and spiritual hope. That today you would possess spiritual power. My prayer is that you would know Christ and the power of his resurrection, Philippians 3.10. And my prayer is identical to what Paul prayed for the Ephesians in chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. He said this, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is quite a prayer. If you are not a Christ follower yet, My prayer today for you 
is that you would see your need of a savior. That today you would you would turn from your sin and you would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. For each of Paul's prayer requests are only possible if you are a believer. If you are not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not possess wisdom, understanding, hope, or power. It's only when you take steps to follow Jesus, turning from your sin and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what your week has been like, and I don't know what the future holds, nor do you. But I pray that today and for the remainder of your days that you would be filled with wisdom, understanding hope and power may the powerful prayer of paul take root in your heart today let's pray thank you father for reorienting our our affections for reorienting the direction of our minds it's so easy to uh, get distracted by the things of the world it's so easy to uh, to be deceived by the the ideology of the world, the kinds of things that the world uh, promises. God, we recognize the great lure of the world, the flesh, and the devil. So my prayer today, once again, God, is that these dear people would possess spiritual wisdom, spiritual understanding, spiritual hope, and spiritual power. May we hear stories of of your grace and how these things come to pass in the lives of of people all around the sanctuary. God, I pray that I would even receive word this week of of practical ways. Uh, A young person who receives wisdom and is able to discern the future. Uh, A single mom who receives spiritual understanding, who, who learns something about your word and is encouraged. Got a couple who is in need of spiritual hope, uh, a marriage that, that may be on the rocks, and you grant them hope. And God's spiritual power for someone who may need that for in the midst of a, a temptation, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of a, a depression, whatever it may be, God, I, may these qualities be found in the members of Christ Fellowship. Thank you for the great uh, hope and joy that we have in the gospel. We realize that apart from the gospel, uh, we have nothing and we have no hope. Thank you, Jesus, that you are alive, that the Father raised you from the grave and that you are seated at the right hand of the Father now, ruling and reigning at the right hand, controlling all things for your glory and for our good. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that one day, one day you will make all things new where every pain will be erased, where every sin will be vanished, where relationships will be restored. Uh, Thank you for the day when you will make all things new. We look forward to that day to be on the new earth and to spend eternity with you and with our loved ones who are in Christ. And now, Lord, as we sing, may we sing with hearts that are filled with joy, hearts that are, are praying this request that Paul prays for this, your people. In your son's worthy name we pray. Amen.